Welcome to Fundraising Institute Australia's first podcast for 2021. We are the national peak body representing professional fundraising in Australia. And our mission is to promote and protect the fundraising sector by advancing professional, ethical, best practice fundraising via the FYA code and through professional development. We also advocate for the sector on behalf of our members and the broader sector to ensure our strength and sustainability in the future. So today, my name's Helen Merrick. I am the Executive Manager for Membership Marketing and Include a Charity, FIA. And I have the pleasure of talking with FIA fellow, Peter Dalton, who's also Director of fundraising firm Dalton Garland Blanchard Group, or DGB as it's known, um, who are a comprehensive campaign agency that strengthens for purpose and non-for-profit brands, their fundraising and also sustainability. So I'm really excited to be talking to Peter today about the six fundraisers dilemmas that fundraisers face. Um, and this was research for Peter's book, which is Giving Hope, the journey of the full purpose organization, its quest for success. So welcome, Peter. Hi. So before we dive into to the content and the dilemmas, can you let us know a little bit about you and your fundraising journey? Sure. So um, hello, everyone. And great to be with you, Helen. So I started quite a long time ago in fundraising back in the, the 80s, would you believe? Um, and I started as director of an organisation called uh, Australian Freedom From Hunger, which ultimately uh, merged into Community Aid Abroad and is today uh, Oxfam. Uh, I worked there for um, about three or four years and I was then uh, recruited to a fundraising consultancy, Downs Venn and Associates, and the venue there is Arthur Venn, so it's my great uh, privilege to have Arthur as my boss and uh, mentor for about seven years, which was a great learning. Wow. At uh, DBA, basically, it was a, was a total development fundraising agency, but also specialised pretty much in capital campaigns. So at any one stage, I could be managing three or four capital campaigns at once, which was uh, pretty hard nose to the, the grindstone and uh, a great learning, but with mentors like uh, Mike and uh, Arthur, it was, uh, it was just a fantastic uh, learning together with a number of other consultants at the time. Um, I then uh, went into my own uh, consultancy and uh, then after you know, working on a whole range of uh, capital campaigns in uh, Australia for major institutions. Um, I decided to move back into a role as a fundraising director at uh, Austin Health. And as part of, of that, working uh, there for about seven years as director of fundraising, and we ran campaigns uh, across three campuses, including the Olivia Newton-John Cancer and Wellness Mm -hmm. campaign, which I uh, suspect many people have heard of, and that was uh, not just an Australian, but an international campaign because of Olivia's uh, profile and, and presence, and I was absolutely adorable working with her for, for yeah. seven years, and I, I have to say that not once did she sing for me, you're the one that I want, but that was my only misgiving in that, that whole yeah. time. Did you get hopelessly devoted for you or not, not that one either? <laughs> no, I didn't score that one either. So, but she is absolutely uh, brilliant and, of course, still is today. Um, I was then recruited to the UK at the Cambridge Biomedical Campus uh, uh, at uh, Cambridge University Hospitals to run a series of 
uh, campaigns. They're really part of a comprehensive campaign model and part of Cambridge University's 800 campaign at the time. I then returned to Australia, worked at um, the ACF for a number of years because I'm an absolute passionate uh, greedy and environmentalist and so I went with my passion there and uh, subsequently I'm now working in a, another consultancy with James Garland and others in DGB. So it's been quite a journey and loved every minute of it. So lots of experience there across lots of different things, which is fantastic. So you definitely will be able to tell us the dilemmas that uh, fundraisers are facing. I'm sure you, you face them all yourselves at different points. So let's jump straight in. And one of the things that I've, I want to start with really is that you say that the very even the very best fundraising professionals that are recruited for non-profit organisations are often being set up to fail. And can you give me a bit of insight on what you mean about that? Yeah, I'm sure all fundraisers listening in will have had, had the experience. Um, I mean, fundamentally, it's not about us as fundraisers not being good professionals, because most of us are, and FIA is testimony to that and professional development, getting our best practice right. It's simply that as a profession, fundraising isn't recognised in the same way that uh, marketing is or finance uh, or other people who sit on the executives of for-purpose organisations. But it was interesting when I was uh, writing the, uh, the book, Giving Hope, with somebody from the for-profit world in, in Robinson Row. We had lots of discussions about, you know, is, is the for-profit world better than the for-purpose world in terms of its uh, organisation and getting the best out of people? And there's lots of cursing assumptions in that. Anyway, we kicked that around over several years and, and working with a number of major for-purpose organisations and ultimately we concluded that the problem is, is fundamentally not with, you know, we as fundraisers. It's an organisational and institutional problem and it's essentially that most institutions that are unable to achieve great fundraising don't achieve it because they have the wrong structure, the wrong culture, and primarily, they don't have an organisational learning culture. Yeah. We've all faced lots of those different things, one or all of them at the same time. So is there one that kind of sticks out the most for you? Yeah, look, it's a great question. Rather than going through them sequentially, the one that has always jumped out for me and I suspect for everyone else on this call is the cost ratio dilemma. <laughs> um, Yes, again, writing this book with someone from the for-profit um, world, if you think of it in the for-profit world, if you are running any business of any size and you, are, you have a 20% profit margin, you're doing really well. Mm. Uh, and all the KPIs and the measures, measures around that, which are not applied to, to fundraisers the same thing, so that if you're doing, you know, 20%, you're doing really well. But for some reason, in the for-purpose world, uh, particularly from a public perspective, there's this notion that, you know, you cannot achieve the outcomes of, and it's not, it's not worthy to achieve them unless you have a low cost ratio. But, of course, that's an absolute total nonsense, as we, we all know. It's just yeah. a measure in time of efficiency. And any organisation that started the fundraising journey Clearly, when you're establishing a total development fundraising program, your costs are going to be greater in the early years. Um, and that's, that's true everywhere. Um, 
in the for-profit world and in the for-purpose for world. So we have people like Dan Pelosa and others who have pointed out the ludicrous notion of this investment. Perhaps uh, one interesting indication is cost ratio has no, no logic in it in terms of why for-purpose organisations are established in the first place. For-purpose organisations are established to solve a problem in our community and to support beneficiaries um, aligned to the mission of the organisation. So take the example of someone wanting to, to find a cure for, for cancer. And you have two different organisations that take a different approach in terms of whether or not they adhere to this cost ratio metric or not. The first organisation says, okay, we don't care how much it costs to raise money, we want to raise $300 million to cure this type of cancers. We know we can. So they go and they raise that money in very short time, but their cost ratio is ex extremely high. It could be 50, 60%. Organisation B says, okay, we want to cure, we want to raise the $300 million, but we want to have a low cost ratio because that's what our donors and what the community want. And therefore, that takes them about 10 to 15 years to find the cure, as opposed to the first organisation that might take three or four years. In the intervening, you know, seven or so years, you know, another one, two million people are going to die from cancer simply because organisation B wants to adhere to a ludicrous cost ratio notion. So it doesn't support the whole purpose of the for-purpose yeah. organisation aligned to our outcomes and mission. So what can we do as fundraisers? What, what advice would you have if, if there's someone listening now and they're going, oh, gosh, I've, I've, I've got that there. Where do we start? You always have to start from the point of having a long-term strategic plan that's aligned to the strategic plan of the organisation. And I've always been frustrated that you know, fundraisers, that the lead fundraiser is not part, is often not part of the strategic planning, planning process. So we all know that um, a total development fundraising program comprises a range of different fundraising programs, each of which have different cost ratios. So for obviously a major gift program I can have a cost ratio which is much lower and you get a much better return on your investment short term. Request is more long term. A donor acquisition is more <clears throat> long term and there obviously there are higher costs in the early years. So the point is rather than to look at cost ratio in terms of individual programs, in planning and budgeting purposes, it's crucially important to have a three to five year what I call a fundraising business plan. And in that, you've got a mix of different cost ratios against different programs. But you can assure that, that overall, the fundraising cost ratio um, over that uh, three to five year term can stay relatively low because you invest heavily in the early years in those programs that have a a much better return on investment than the others that don't. But that still enables you, therefore, to invest more long-term in those programs that don't. Yeah, so 
Long term, very, very important. How do you think that fits with the other dilemma you have here around? Well, there's two here that fit quite nicely in that. The staff turnover dilemma. You're looking at a long term and you need long term staff and also the tied funding dilemma. Those two things fit quite well with your uh, cost ratio dilemma. Yeah, yeah, they, they really do. So, um, you know, staff turnover is, is totally related to, um, I think, the cost ratio uh, dilemma in, in particular. Because, again, the reason that fundraisers leave and uh, the Compass report in 2016, Chronicle of Philanthropy, AFP's countless council reports saying that, um, you know, the average turnover for fundraisers is around 18 months, uh, more than half of fundraisers think they're going to, uh, you know, be leaving in two years. Mm-hmm. There's something like 30% of fundraisers that don't think they'll be fundraisers in two years. It's it's primarily because the metrics they are benchmarked against based on cost ratio are totally unrealistic. So with the staff turnover, and that's just for the teams as well, what would you suggest as a, um, a fundraising director or fundraising manager, how do you... How do you kind of solve that issue? Well, we all know that to create great fundraising, you need a great fundraising team and you also need to invest in professional development. So coming back to that point of an organisation not having an organisational learning culture, if as part of developing that fundraising business plan, as well as just looking at the looking at it programmatically in order to ensure that you get uh, what is a ridiculous notion of an acceptable cost ratio over those that that you know three to five year, year period, you need to build into that an, an investment in professional development of your fundraising staff. The thing about an organizational learning culture as well is that when you come to recruit staff, you're recruiting them on the basis that they have not just um, uh, good you know, fundraising experience and best fundraising practice application, but these are fundraisers that are looking for a career in professional development. They have emotional intelligence, and the primary part of that is they want to be part of a great team sharing that success. Mm. And you can only do that in an organisation that embraces that and wants to share in that success. And that's why it becomes primarily um, an organisational problem. And I always recommend to fundraisers that when they're looking to work for an organisation um, or a particular cause, they choose the, that organisation and cause as much upon how it's structured, what the culture is in the organisation, as much as how they feel about it personally and passionately from a career development point of view. And so there's another dilemma that kind of fits into that, and I found found this as well, and this is the pecking order dilemma, where culturally that often is, that's kind of driven by this pecking order dilemma of what you wanted. So do you want to talk a bit more about what you mean by by that? Yeah, yeah, look, at, look I agree with it. It's very much related to the um, cost ratio. It, it's such a curious one, isn't it, that... Um, Often, often for-purpose organisations, um, uh, there's you know fifty percent or more of the total turnover of that organisation comes from fundraising. Yeah. Yet the fundraiser is not part of the executive team. Mm. It just doesn't make any sense. 
The, the really interesting thing is that when I was uh, working on the book with Rob from the for-profit world, he said to me, Peter, just, just be careful what you wish for. <laughs> it's quite possible that if if the full purpose organisation doesn't have the right structure and the right culture, mm-hmm. by going on to the, the executive team, you rather become part of the problem rather than the solution. Because if the organisation is built in silos, it doesn't have an organisational learning culture, it's very difficult for great fundraising to survive. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen in any case. A really interesting study that sort of highlights this was um, uh, Sajid and Shane's 2016 fantastic seminal work on great fundraising, which was actually undertaken when I was in the UK at the time. And it was interesting uh, talking to to Avi and Sajid about this at, at the time as well. And basically the metric was he said, well, what are the top 10, you know, performing uh, fundraising organisations in the UK. Yeah. And what is unique about them in terms of the fundraising team, in particular the fundraising leader in the organisation? And one of the primary findings of the report was all these really successful fundraisers who are creating great fundraising as leaders in the UK in those top organisations you know, quote, unquote, they had an ability to embed themselves in the organisation. Yeah. So it wasn't just about being part of that um, uh, organisational structure at executive level. That is fantastic if it is an organisation that has the wrong structure. But we as fundraisers, because we are raising a significant percentage of the turnover of the organisation, we have influence. And it's about our ability as leaders to manage up, not just manage down to our fundraising team, but manage up and to bring the finance director on board and think think about different metrics mm-hmm. such as donor lifetime value and not just the annual budget manager. To actually work with the programs team when you're trying to get great fundraising stories and great and work, work with marketing. So it's fundamentally that relationship and any, any for-purpose organisation between the, the marketing team, the program delivery team and the fundraising team. So if the three leaders in those teams are aligned to best practice outcomes in fundraising, it's a fantastic place to work with. There are very few places like that that I've come across. There's been a couple and it's just, just amazing. How important in that is the CEO board? And I know it's something that we often talk about FI is getting fundraisers on boards. Um, and again, going back to are we, is, is that good or a bad thing? Um, but you know, is, is that, would you see that as a, an important thing to, to have that representation at that governance level? Absolutely. I, I think it's, you know, it, it's really keen because, you know, clearly the board and the CEO set the culture of the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to be on board. Um, many of the campaigns that um, that I get involved in are, are transformative campaigns. They're multi-multi-million-dollar campaigns, and as a consequence, they attract the attention of, of CEOs and and boards in terms of their strategic planning. Um, it's, it's fairly profound. So we as fundraisers should not be um, shy 
in terms of what our impact is on the organisation and delivering outcomes. And we should be seen as, you know, a primary part of the solution rather than a problem. And we need to be measured by different metrics. And we need to develop that partnership with primarily in the first instance, the, the CEO. So again, coming back to that question of who you, who you would choose to work with um, as a fundraiser looking for career development in the for-purpose for organisation, the first thing to do is to have a look at who the CEO is, yeah. how they relate to the current fundraising team and what, what they think about that, because that really is absolutely essential. You can be the best fundraiser in the world, but if the CEO and the board are not, not aligned to trying to create greater fundraising, you will fail. So let's move and focus a bit on more of the product and the market side. So you have two dilemmas of the six that focus on this. So let's maybe talk a bit about the crowded market dilemma. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? It's not, it's mm. not just, just about... Um, you know, the number of new, you know, charities that are, are coming into the market, I don't think that's the fundamental problem. Um, the fundamental problem with the, the crowd of market uh, dilemma is that we as fundraisers have been um, trapped a bit because of the cost ratio dilemma um, and because of the product hope and um, misery dilemma. Um, I'm sure all of us are aware of the Olive Cook story in the UK that led Ken Burnett to, you know, set up the commission on the donor experience. And Ken spoke at last year's uh, FIA conference, the plenary session, and, and anyone was there would understand how devastating that has been for the fundraising profession and for, for four-purpose organisations in the UK. We have been lucky, but only lucky that we've avoided that here in, in Australia and perhaps COVID was part of the, you know, that not happening sooner rather than, mm. than, than later. But when, when we are all trying to compete ferociously to acquire new donors simply because we have all these metrics that are set by finance to partners, rather than allowing it to long-term investment in, in fundraising and in and creating donor lifetime value, that's when we cause a problem. So organisations say, look, they become dependent on one, on one or a number of different fundraising products for want of a better description. And I suppose face-to-face -face on the street is a classic case of that where I know with a number of overseas aid agencies, they were very reliant on it through child sponsorship. And as a consequence, uh, you know, when COVID hit, it was already, even though face-to-face -face was growing, the, <clears throat> the percentage of the, that take was declining because more people were entering the market. And that was causing pressures on the huge budgetary pressures even before COVID hit. So it's about, again, being attentive to having a fully developed total fundraising <clears throat> development plan in place so you're not reliant on single income streams. So there's so, there's so much in that that we can unpack and so that's probably like about four other podcasts to be quite honest <laughs> that we can go into. So if you, you, you're kind of looking at the crowded market, so 
what can we do as fundraisers to kind of um, mitigate that? I don't think we can solve it. I don't think the solutions and there never will be, but how do we mitigate? Is it around diversification of revenue streams? Um, what, what kind of would a couple of the key things be that we could mitigate? Yeah, it really is around diversification because it's only through diversification that you can justify, and I think it is, is perfectly justifiable to have um, high cost ratios for donor acquisition. Mm -hmm. It's essential that you continue donor acquisition across everything you do. But if you don't support donor, if you're supporting donor acquisition only with regular giving, mm. you're not also supporting it with major gifts and requests and campaigns and it, these days impact investing and a whole range of other things, then the cost ratio overall is, is going to look difficult and you're going to get those pressures from, you know, board CEOs and others. So it's about us understanding that the need to have a, a robust plan that is long-term, that drives down a lifetime value long-term. Because at any, any one time, you know, a, a donor who's, who's acquired as, you know, a first-time donor, whether it's, you know, face-to-face, -face, direct mail or whatever, you know, potentially through their donor life cycle, you know, they can be, and they can become a regular giver, they can become a major donor and they can become a bequester and, and all sorts of things. So we have to see them um, as a, a lifetime opportunity. But if we don't have the other programs in place to support that at the top end of the donor pyramid, if you like, it's, it's frankly not worth doing. Mm. I think that then comes into your tight funding dilemma where all these things need undesignated funding to kind of help them be done because we need investment in that sense. So how do we convince, I know it, it's a it's a conversation I often have with people and I've had with donors when I, when I work directly as a fundraiser. So what would your advice be around the untied funding dilemma that we face or the tied funding dilemma we face? Yeah, well, the, the tied fundraising dilemma is a, a really interesting one and it, it can apply also to government. So you think, uh, you know, government funding for many for-purpose organisations is tied to specific outcomes that are in the government's interest, but not necessarily to the mission of the organisation. And we've actually seen a number of um, for-purpose organisations that have really been handcuffed and have to really change their, their mission and direction because to survive, they've, you know, want to, to um, go down a path of tied government funding that is not ideal. So again, this is where we as fundraisers have an opportunity to put a proposition to say, okay, to, to really see what, what philanthropists can do. They can fund things that government can't. Mm -hmm. So our part of our mission, I think, is to work with philanthropists for transformational change of an organisation or to achieve you know, a particular outcome for, for a cause uh, by having, having them share in that um, outcome as well. We've become trapped too with a number of products, as I call it, which is tied from in that product dilemma. So an interesting one there is, you know, child sponsorship. Mm. Child, child sponsorship is a product and the organisation, interesting overseas organisations have become known as child sponsorship agencies. Well, they're not. <laughs> They're organisations that are there actually to help people in need in developing countries. 
Um, and it's to solve, solve poverty and, and justice and inequality. So there's one um, overseas aid agency um, recently that through its strategic planning process has really addressed this head on and that, that's uh, Plan International. And it basically has repositioned itself from mm. the sponsorship agency to uh, their, their new uh, 2020 vision of uh, Because I Am a Girl. So they've looked at injustice of, of women and particularly girls in developing countries mm. and said, if we can solve that problem, all the other problems of poverty will be addressed yeah. consequently. And that's really powerful and transformative. And it, that means working then with marketing, working with program delivery teams changing, the messaging coming from fundraising changing. And it's a, it's a great case of where the organisation can work across what were previously siloed areas mm. um, to, to be far more connected to mission and outcomes that are powerful, that everyone wants to go in the into the office every day and I want equality for girls and this is why it's important and donors can relate to it, everyone can relate to it more personally and emotionally and it's really powerful and fundamentally it's a fundraising proposition. Yeah, definitely. So there's so much there and so many and it's almost like I feel a bit like oh gosh so many challenges but on a positive note I think there's also so much that we can do and so much influence that we can have as fundraisers you're talking about. Um, so, so finally on a, a kind of a there's all these dilemmas, but where would you leave it when you're kind of concluding what's happening and, and what can we do moving forward, which is a, a very large question? Um, I suppose I, I'm old enough to say I'm just so encouraged uh, with fundraisers today. Perhaps I'll put it when I first came into the profession, uh, the profession uh, was very much people like I am today, sort of a white, elderly, pasty old male. Um, and the great thing is now the, the, the typical uh, fundraiser and member of FIA is young, female, well-qualified, and more importantly, they have options. They don't have to stay in fundraising. Um, and I'm just so thrilled to see so, so many of them wanting to stay in fundraising, look at it as a profession, value add to it and really empower it. And that's what we have to do. We just have to keep being more and more professional, more committed to professional development and to embed ourselves in the organisation. Um, and it's, it's just really fantastic to see because what we do really matters and matters more than most professions. So let's just get with it, it's fantastic. Well, thank you, Peter, so much for your time today. It was really, really interesting. And I would recommend everyone who's listening to um, get a copy of Peter's book, Giving Hope, The Journey of the Four Purpose Organisation and its quest for success. We have it through the FIA bookshop. If everyone wants to, and there's other places you can buy it, I'm sure. Where can we get it from, Peter? You can do a quick plug. Yeah, you can just just uh, just Google it and it'll come up with all sorts of uh, platforms and selling it. So yeah. So fantastic. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. And um, yeah, go get a copy of uh, Peter's book and learn. And hopefully when we have this conversation in five, ten years time, um, some of those dilemmas won't be six. They'll be less than them. And we'll have got some solutions and moving forward.